All right, well, good morning. We're glad that you're here with us, and we've been going through our values as a church, our together values, and, and today we're going to be talking about celebrating together, and so I'm excited to be able to share with you about that topic. You see, when we gather here every Sunday, we're gathering to celebrate who the Lord is and what He's done in our lives, and across the history of the, the Christian church, we've watched as Christianity has split up into various denominations over doctrinal issues and and practice, but there have been a few doctrines and practices across the history of Christianity uh, that have tied all authentic expressions of the Christian faith together across time. And, And there's much discussion about these essential doctrines. What do we have to believe to be a Christian? Um, But it's not often that we talk about um, the outward expressions of Christianity that extinguish us. Uh, we would call these the sacraments. Um, and so uh, when we're thinking about sacraments, I just want to give us kind of a quick definition. Um, a sacrament is a holy practice of the church that helps us to remember and celebrate who Christ is and what he's done for us. So it's something tangible. It's something that we do together. And, and depending on what tradition of the faith you're with, uh, you might hear that there's six sacraments, you might hear that there's 12, there's even disagreement there, right? But there are two things, two things that have been undisputed across the history of Christianity, and those are baptism and the Lord's Supper. Um, and we're going to take some time uh, to look at both of those, but we're also going to talk about singing. Now, congregational singing may not be considered an official sacrament of the church, but most recognize that this is an essential part of sacramental worship. It's an essential part of what we do when we gather here together. And ironically, these three things, baptism, the Lord's Supper, and singing, um, while they are the kind of common threads throughout uh, Christian history, uh, they're also the things that have caused some of the most division, right? I mean, churches have split over what age you baptize people or what's happening when we take communion or even what kind of songs we sing. Um, But regardless of the fact that people have various approaches and beliefs about these things, um, it's not, there's no such thing as an authentic expression of Christianity that doesn't include some element of these things. So it's important that we we know how it is that we're going to practice it and what we believe about it as we practice them. So we'll start with baptism. And in, in the Old Covenant between the Israelites and God, and we spend a lot of time in the Old Testament here, it has been nice to take a little bit of a break. Uh, but uh, it's important, right? Oh, and, and we see this connection um, between, uh, in the Old Covenant, the Israelites and God. God's people were to mark themselves as an outward expression, a tangible expression of their devotion to Him. And, and this was the act of circumcision. It was a physical sign of being set apart for the Lord. And in the New Covenant, under Christ, we witness a lot of debate over circumcision. Uh, Paul has to address it in many of the letters he writes to the New Testament churches of, of do you have to be circumcised to follow God or, or not? Um, and people had very strong opinions about this on both sides, and Paul kind of enters into the discussion to sort of help uh, clear some things up. Um, and, and many believed that you, you, you must still be circumcised to truly be saved and set apart for God. And, and so here's what Paul has to say about that. In Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 8, 
He says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ." having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. And so, essentially, in Christ, we no longer need this, um, this circumcision, this, this tangible experience, because Christ makes us a new creation. Baptism, in a way, replaces circumcision in the new covenant. It is a new physical outward sign of who we are as set apart for Christ. And this symbol of us being buried with Christ and being raised with Him is a very powerful symbol. So when somebody is baptized, it's a celebration. When we have that here, and we're we're talking about doing that soon, it's a celebration of Christ putting a new life into somebody. But Paul makes another important point in Romans that we should take into consideration when we're thinking about this topic of baptism. Um, And he's saying this in reference initially to circumcision, but there's a correlation here I want us to see. He says, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. I bet you didn't expect us to say the word circumcised that many times. Okay, it's a bit of a tongue twister, but what is the point? Right? He's saying that circumcision in and of itself is not what saved Abraham. It was his faith that saved him. The circumcision was simply an outward expression of his saving faith. And in the same way, while it carries great spiritual significance, baptism in and of itself does not save us. It is an outward sign of a faith that saves us. During his crucifixion, Jesus tells the thief on the cross next to him that he will be in paradise with him that day. And... He wasn't baptized. There wasn't time for that, right, in that scenario. Um, But I also just think even uh, an example that hits a little closer to home, an experience that I had, um, there was um, a a young girl who I once prayed with who received Christ in a church that I was serving in, and her grandparents brought her to church every Sunday, and they were very faithful in bringing her, but her parents were not happy that she was there. They didn't really agree with it, but they let her grandparents take her, and Man, when, when she accepted Christ, there was such a visible transformation. I mean, it was like a whole new kid. I mean, she just, her attitude, everything about her was, was completely new. There was no denying that she had been saved. 
Um, but one, one Sunday she came in and she was, she was crying. She was in tears. And, and, and I, I asked her, I said, what's wrong? And, and she was crying because her parents had told her that she couldn't be baptized. That was one step too far for them. And she thought that because she couldn't be baptized, she wasn't saved. And, you know, this was a very, very difficult scenario. And, and I always think of this when people try to spin baptism as, as this is what saves. And you're not really a Christian if you haven't been baptized. Think about a scenario like this. She's a child. She's a minor. And her parents are saying, no, you can't. She's probably going to have to wait until she is an adult to be baptized. But does that make her any less saved? We know that's not the case, right? However, this is a very unique scenario, and while it's one we should take into consideration, uh, the fact is, if you are an adult with the ability to be baptized, and at that point you still refuse, I think it's emblematic of a deeper problem, um, because what that is revealing is a spirit of disobedience. If baptism is an outward sign of our faith, then the refusal of a professing Christian to be baptized is an outward sign of disobedience. Um, so while I'm not saying you must be baptized to receive salvation, I am saying if you are a believer and you have the ability to be baptized and it's something you're refusing to do, it does bring up some questions. Uh, let's face it, getting baptized is the easiest thing that Jesus is ever going to ask us to do. Okay, so... So if we're, if we're refusing that, then there's, there's something, there's a heart problem that needs to be dealt with. Um, so, so those are all just things that I want us to take into consideration as, as we consider baptism, but it's a very important part of the Christian life, and I look forward to many more baptisms, Lord willing, um, in Restoration Church. Um, and um, if they happen soon, they won't be on the beach because it's too cold for that. But um, uh, I'm excited about, about seeing... Anytime we see a new life come to Christ, we get to celebrate that through baptism. That really is a celebration. Um, and so at Restoration Church, we're committed to celebrating together through believers' baptism. The next thing is communion. We celebrate together through the practice of communion. Jesus instituted the practice of communion at the Passover dinner with his disciples and in the same way that the sign of blood saved the Israelites in Egypt during the first Passover, so now the blood of Christ has made salvation possible for us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So there's this sort of explanation of communion and sort of a warning there, a very stark warning at the end. But communion is a symbol of Christ's sacrifice for us. And, and there's some odd teachings out there about communion, um, particularly in the Roman Catholic Church, that somehow as we take communion, it actually becomes the real body and blood 
of Jesus. It's called transubstantiation. And while we don't believe that here, um, I, I think that some Protestant circles have so overcorrected that we've completely taken out um, the, the, the mystery and um, the sacred element of communion. Because there is something spiritually mysterious about what's happening in that the Holy Spirit is present with us when we take communion. And we should recognize that. It is a sacred and holy act. And Paul makes it very clear here that it should not be taken lightly. So because of some of the weird teaching out there, I think some Protestants have so overcorrected that it's just something that we do. There's nothing special. It's just a thing we do to remember Jesus. But it's not just a thing that we do. This is a sacred practice of the church. We take it every week here at Restoration, and I love that. Um, but when we do it, there's a warning there that, that we, should, we should take that seriously. We should not take it in a manner that is unworthy. Now, Paul's addressing a very specific issue where the Corinthians were actually getting drunk on communion wine. Um, so that is not a problem that we have here. Um, uh, we don't use quite as strong elements. Um, but... I do believe that this point still stands that we ought not to take what is happening during the Lord's Supper flippantly. As we prepare to take the elements, we should go before the Lord in prayer and confess and repent of any sins in our lives to prepare our hearts to receive and remember what He's done, acknowledging the sacrifice that He made for us. And in doing this every week, as we remember the body and the blood of Christ, I believe what's really happening is it helps us to remember the weight of our sin. That like this costs something. And so we, we ought not to step into that lightly. So here at Restoration Church, we're committed to celebrating together through the regular practice of communion. And now we move on to worship through song. Um, and as I said earlier, while congregational singing may not be considered an official sacrament of the church, most recognize that it is an essential part of what we do when we gather and worship. And it, it goes right along with all of the other sacraments. We pray, we, we baptize, we take communion, and we sing every time that we gather together. And um, the Bible's just full of examples of people worshiping the Lord in song. But, but why, why do we sing? Now, some of you have heard my rant about this before, um, but since I have the floor and I'm usually confined to singing, I'm going to go ahead and share it again. Because um, it's important that we remember why it is that we sing when we gather together. Um, because for some outsiders experiencing this for the first time, it's a really weird thing. Like, I feel like for some outsiders, it's probably even weirder than communion and baptism. Because at least with that, okay, that's part of their belief system. That's their, but why are they singing? Is this a musical? Like, what's going on here? And, and, and I think it, it's a valid question for somebody who doesn't necessarily connect with singing. Those who are not musically inclined may not connect with that part of our gatherings. Um, and some people come to Christ later in life and, and very quickly acclimate to the practice of worship through praise because they love to sing. They're very musical people. So it's like, well, if I sing about things that I love and I love Jesus now, why wouldn't I sing? So for a lot of people, it's a very easy connection. But I want to acknowledge that some of you may not like singing. Some of you may not be very musically inclined. And it's like, well... You know, you tolerate that part of the service, but it's not something you fully connect with. And so that's really kind of what I want to address is, is why it's important that all of us sing together. Because um, it is part of celebrating Christ. So 
So we, we find very easily scriptural justification for baptism, for communion, for prayer, for preaching the word, all of these other things. But what does the Bible have to say about singing? Why is this included with all of these other sacraments in our gatherings? I want to look at Colossians 3.16. Paul says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And then in Ephesians 5.19, he says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. So both New Testament passages here where singing is mentioned are in the context where Paul is, is giving a call to holy living, and they're mentioned alongside with teaching and wisdom, this idea of teaching the word and, and, and letting wisdom take root in our hearts. So, while singing is never listed as its own sacrament, I do believe that we see singing demonstrated as a sacrament of teaching the word. This is why it matters that we sing. It is a form of preaching and teaching when we sing these songs. And this is why it matters what we sing, the words that we're singing. But beyond these biblical reasons for singing, there are practical reasons as well, music is just a universal language. It connects with us on a way that nothing else really can. It engages our emotions in a distinct way, and it etches itself into our memories. Right? There's lots of songs that we, we, just, we know the tune, we know the melody. And, and we've heard the stories of, of dementia patients who in their final days, though they could not remember their own name, upon hearing the beginning of a song, they could finish the line right, because it's stuck with them in a powerful way. And we also see how music helps develop the brain of an infant or a young child um, and help them to, to keep the brain strong. Music, there's something mysterious and spiritual about it in nature. Uh, Beethoven once said that music is the mediator between the spiritual and the sensual life, right? And we have music theory and all of these different things um, and you can study it and get very analytical about it, but any good musician acknowledges that if you get so caught up in the theory and, and the, the technicality of it that you forget how to feel it, that you're, you're not going to do well with it. Um, even atheists can't deny that there's something seemingly supernatural about music. Right? Even if you don't consider yourself a singer or a musician, there's no design, denying that music has the power to communicate and engage your mind and your soul in a way that nothing else can. That's why the words matter, because it's engaging our mind. What do we believe? But the music is engaging our hearts. And, and let's face it, we don't leave these gatherings on Sunday mornings um, reciting the sermon as we're walking out. We're not just saying whatever quote we really liked, but we do remember the songs that we've sung together as we're going throughout our week. Those stay in our heads. Singing solidifies the truth of the gospel in our heart. It's a way to, to connect that we will remember, that will stick with us. And then another big question that comes up, like I mentioned, ironically, though, singing, baptism, communion, all these things, like if you're a Christian, doesn't matter what tradition, what denomination, what camp you're in, like you do these things, there's still lots of debate. I mean, Churches have split over, do we even use instruments? Do we do, like there's so many fights and arguments about music and how we do music within the church. And a lot of people make it theological that this way is the right way to do it 
and all other ways are wrong. Um, so do we sing contemporary songs or do we sing hymns? Do we only sing from the scripture? Um, is it supposed to be an emotional experience or is it strictly reason? Are we just um, going to kind of be emotionless and avoid that? Because that's, that's to this way or that way. And so there's always these questions that come up. And I think of what Jesus said uh, in, in John chapter 4, starting in verse 21. He says, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, but we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. So, She's a Samaritan, and there's this debate about where they worship and how they worship and who's right and who's wrong. And Jesus is saying, none of that matters. God is looking for people who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And so I think there's room here for emotions and, and for logic. Um, we have a rich tradition of songs, both old and modern. I think there's some great contemporary songs. I think there's some great hymns. I think it's great to just sing the scriptures straight from the Psalms. All of these things are okay as long as we are worshiping in spirit and truth. And worship should be rooted in truth. It matters the words that we're singing. But we don't need to be afraid of a worship experience that engages our emotions. That's not wrong. That is, that is a good thing. But I think it's also important that we not let our emotions become the test for if our worship experience was truthful, right? We, we may not have an emotional experience every single Sunday, but we shouldn't leave church thinking, oh, I didn't feel all tingly during any of the songs. I guess, I guess worship was bad today. No, 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 that's not how it works. Did what you sing, was it true? If yes, then worship was good. And sometimes worship will engage your emotions, and it may lead you to tears, and it may make you feel tingly, and you may feel very close to God in that moment, and that's a good thing, but they're both good. And we don't need to have that sensational, emotional experience every time, but we shouldn't be afraid of it either. I think there's a balance here when we ask that question. And we need to use Scripture as a test and a guide for the types of songs we sing. Is what we are singing truthful? Because that's where it starts. Um, so... At Restoration Church, we celebrate by singing together. So those are three different things, and honestly, those all could have been their own sermon, and we kind of like scratched like the surface of all of those things. But what's the common thread? Right? It's a lot of thoughts, a lot of things to, to be thinking about, a lot of different ways that we celebrate together. What's the common thread? Well, a couple of things. These are tangible ways... To, to celebrate who God is and what he's done. These are all things that we do with our mouths, with our hands. These are all things that we do together, right? When we pray, there's a time to pray together and there's a time to pray just yourself and God. When we study the word, there's a time to study it together and there's a time to just be in the word by yourself. But these are things that are meant to be done together. Communion, baptism, singing, not that you can't necessarily like just sing by yourself or even take communion by yourself, but these are things that are meant to be done in community. I, I'd like to see somebody try to baptize themselves. I don't think that's how it's supposed to be done. So that one's, that one's definitely a communal thing, right? Um, 
But these things are meant to be done together. And these are how the church has been celebrating in these gatherings that we have um, since the church's conception. Uh, so these are time-tested ways of celebrating who God is, and, and they're ways that have been passed down to us from God himself. All of these are things that make tangible the spiritual truths that we believe. Because we can talk about it, we can think about it, we can read about it, but when we actually do it, right? When we actually do it through communion, through singing, through all of these things, it, it helps us to connect with it in a way that is so tangible, and, and it makes those truths come alive. So if there's a common thread, if there's one thing I want you to kind of get out of all these different things we've been talking about, it's that the sacraments of the church are the actions that turn our theology into experience, and they're meant to be done in community. The sacraments of the church are the actions that turn our theology into experience, and they're meant to be done in community. At Restoration Church, we're committed to celebrating together. We love it when we get to take the Lord's Supper as a community, when we get to sing as a community, when we get to celebrate a believer's baptism in community. So let's keep doing those things together, and let's keep letting the Lord lead us in it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for all of the ways that you've given us to connect with you and to learn about you and to connect with one another and to celebrate you. We thank you that there's so much to celebrate. You are so good to us. And there's never a reason to stop celebrating. Father, there's there so many difficulties and things that come our way, but the truth of the gospel stands firm in the midst of life's storms, and it will always be worth celebrating. So I pray that you will foster a spirit of celebration in our hearts, that we would celebrate others in a way that we would celebrate you in a way that others see and they want to be a part of it. They want to know who it is that we're celebrating, that they would come to know you by the witness of our celebration. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.